Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compiled that all into a book, so you'll see question and four or five experts' answers. Question, four or five experts' answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. It talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as are they alive or not, and why is it important? Uh, why do viruses go latent or hidden or ineffective or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years? and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person. Uh, so there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. The Audible version is in production and should be ready in approximately a month. But if you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle or go, go to FindingGeniusFoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we had put them all together, the book would be about a thousand pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research. And I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now a part of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation. I have Josh Silverman. He's the CEO of Aromix, A-R-O-M-Y-X. We're going to talk about early diagnostics of cancer and uh, possibly uh, COVID as well. So, Josh, thanks for coming. Thanks very much for having me, Richard. Yeah, tell me, uh, so Aromix probably has to do with sense of smell and aroma. Uh, what, what's the premise of the company? Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, you've got the, the key aspect there. So I mean, the, the core aspect of the company is that we as humans are actually incredibly good chemical detectors. So we, we walk around with these sensors in our nose that are able to pick up minute changes in chemical composition, you know, down to part per trillion level sensitivity in a background of tens of thousands of unrelated chemicals. And that's a really hard problem for analytical chemistry and GCMS and traditional chemical analytical methods to deal with. Yet it's something we do every single day, most of the time without even thinking about it. And so while we are incredibly good chemical detectors, we are incredibly bad at quantifying and, and describing uh, those uh, differences. So again, if you give me two cups of coffee from different single source origins, I can tell you very high accuracy that those are different cups of coffee, different sources. It's really hard for me to tell you why they're different, how much they're different, and what are the underlying things that, that correspond to that. So Aromix technology is biotech-based, so we actually use those same receptors in the nose and tongue that are able to pick up those very tiny differences in chemical composition, and we turn that into an assay system where we can actually measure 
the response of each individual receptor in a test tube, for lack of a better word. And so we can actually measure that same quantitative data that's going from your nose and tongue to your brain when you taste or smell something. So you're trying to measure what we smell and taste in a lab setting or... Yep. Yep. So we're, we're trying to create quantitative measures of smell and taste and be able to turn that into real actionable insights uh, that people can use for a, a wide variety of industries. And obviously food and beverage is sort of an obvious one that everyone goes to immediately. People get that. Why? Because people are better able to smell that something's off than, uh, than what? Than, I mean, how else is it determined if something's, you know, still a shelf life or not? Well, uh, yeah, so shelf life is certainly one of those areas, but, you know, just think about wine and what, what makes the difference between a $10 bottle of wine and a $300 bottle of wine? You know, why, why, what are the flavor notes? What are the experiences? What are the things that drive you to like one thing that much better than another? Think about perfumes and, and right? it doesn't have to just be spoilage and technique spoilage, but all of the, you know, those tiny features, those different nuances of flavor notes, those are you know, very small differences in chemical composition and, you know, there's thousands of chemicals in a, in a glass of wine and your nose is picking up just the tiniest differences of those and interpreting that by, or your brain is interpreting that as, okay, this is a really great bottle versus this is a, you know, so-so bottle, right? And it's those types of differences that again, we as humans are really bad. Again, we know it. If you, if you drink it, you can often tell, okay, you know, I like this bottle a lot better than that bottle. If I ask you why or or how you know how are those things different, you really struggle at being able to describe it. And a, a lot of the problem actually comes from the fact sense of smell is our oldest sense. We actually developed a sense of smell before we even developed a brain. So how do you know that? How could you know that? Well, because there are, there are animals out there. They actually exist. They have noses and they don't have brains, right? So, and we can tell through the evolutionary path that uh, this is what happened. And you think about, you know, a bacteria swimming around in a, in a soup, right? You know, it doesn't have eyes, but it has chemical sensors and it uses those chemical sensors to detect its environment. And it's really important to be able to find food, to be able to get away from threats and those types of things. So again, you think about an animal in a forest trying to look for food, it's got to be able to detect those things that are good for it in a sea of unrelated chemicals, right? You're going to be be able to find the food behind all the chemicals associated with the soil, the trees, the grasses, and all that sort of thing. And then when it gets to the food, it has to be able to make a decision very quickly. Is this food healthy? You know, is this going to be good for me when I eat it? Or is it going to kill me? Is it spoiled and and, uh, nauseous and poisonous? Right. And, and so there's a very strong selective pressure there to make it work. Uh, and, and it's very co- tied to the very core of survival. But again, the sense of smell, because it was the earliest sense, it's connected into the oldest areas of the brain. So it actually is very much a bottoms up signal processing. The oldest areas, the things that control emotion and memory is where our sense of smell gets processed compared to our eyes and ears are actually going much more frontal lobe. So it's very much a top-down, more analytical. So it's a lot easier for us to describe our sense of vision and sense of hearing um, because, again, it is going through the more, you know, the higher level brain function. Sense of smell is so tied into emotion and just sort of gut feeling that, again, it's very hard for us to uh, describe and quantify it. So, again, what we do is take that human subjectivity out (laughs) and we take the brain out as it were. And we're just measuring this raw data going in, into the brain. So we can give a very quantitative and objective measurement of smell for the first time. What are your goals? What are the commercial applications? Well, again, yeah, things like food and beverages is is a very easy one for people to get, you know, think about 
you know, wine and perfume and being able to uh, say what is different about these different features, you know, different flavor profiles, be able to uh, tell consumers why they should like one over the other. Uh, we see a lot of, you know, again, if you just go and read a wine review right now, right, you'll, you'll see things like, you know, hints of granite, notes of blackberry, and, you know, me reading it, I have no idea what that tastes like. I have no idea if I'm going to like that or not. I, I have no idea what granite tastes like, right? So that's not a very useful description for me. It was great, I'm sure, for the person who wrote it, they have an idea of what that means, but it doesn't communicate anything to the consumer. So the ability to basically create a unified standard of smell in the same way we have a an RGB code for colors, right? We can precisely describe any color that a human can perceive with a specific set of numbers we can now do that for smell as well. And so being able to put that into a format that consumers can understand, we can recommend. So consumers have a better idea what they're going to buy. Companies have a better idea how to design and uh, and create the flavor profiles targeted towards those consumers. Well, what does that mean? I mean, some people like certain smells and like patchouli, I hate it. It yep. smells like dirt, like the grave. Yeah, yeah. Some people yeah. Like, like, like denim, like I'm inhaling yeah. denim, but some yep. people like it, but what do you have, like a sourness and an unpleasant well, so, foulness smell? No, or, so, you know? Yeah, so this this comes back to a core of our technology. It's a biotech platform, right? So we are we are measuring the smell using human receptors. And a big, like you said, you don't like patchouli. You know, some people don't like cilantro. Some people don't like beets. It turns out a lot of that is actually just due to genetic variation. You have different receptors than I do. The receptors in your nose, on average, two people are only about 70% identical. So 30% of your receptors are different than mine. And so when you, you know, inhale and you bring a bunch of chemicals into your nose, you're actually getting a, a different set of raw data than I am when I inhale the exact same thing. And so we are able, again, because we use the biological receptors directly, we can make those different genetic versions. We know what those are. We know what demographics, ethnicities um, have certain receptors more frequently than others. And we can show why different people think, you know, this thing tastes good or bad to them. Right? So when can, you, can you develop a smell test so that people can quantify what types of things they will like and not like? Like, do you have a set of um, base reagent smells that you can give to someone and after they smell them, you can say, oh, okay. You're in this type of pattern and you have these receptors. So therefore, we can recommend these products. To you. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're actually developing uh, something very similar to that and, and less so on giving them a set of standards, but more, you know, if we learn uh, you know, through interactions with them, questionnaires, and, and even using things like emotional responses, we can start to tease that out. We can also, I would say, we're, we're a little less focused on the, the pure individual basis and more on uh, large-scale demographics sort of by country. So, you know, think about food companies that are very successful, say, in the United States. They've got products that consumers love in the U.S., and then they try to take that product to China, and suddenly, you know, nobody likes it. Right? Everyone says, oh, this is terrible. You know, you have to reformulate it, change it. And a lot of that's because the, you know, genetic background of people in China is very different than the genetic background of people in the U.S. And so if we can help to bridge that gap and, and identify uh, features and flavor notes that will be perceived positively or negatively by the average person of a certain uh, geographic, geographic background, we can help design and, and improve products and you know, target marketing in, in many useful ways for these companies. So is that your main focus? I mean, within a country, you have, you know, some countries are very diverse, like the United States. Sure. How are you going to have a smell profile that most people in the United States like or well, taste profile? Before we continue, 
I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700-plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000-plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. Right. Well, I mean, I think it, it comes back to when you say most people, right? And, you know, we know that today, you know, for any product on the marketplace, like even the examples you've given, there's going to be some stuff that some people like and some stuff that some people hate, right? And it's more about finding the right targeted areas to get into. And so you get like diverse countries, there are still groups uh, of people in certain ethnicities knowing where to, where to market these things. And from large-scale genetic testing, we have a very good idea of how these individual variations in receptors, how those tie to certain demographics. And you know, we can do that in geographic breakdown. Um, and you know, we can give very targeted marketing advice and product development advice. I think on the, you know, on the one side, it's it's not realistic to think, you know, you can make something that everyone is going. There is there is no single. No, I, I didn't think you could, but again, how like for America, would you have a palette? Let's say you're doing, I don't know, uh, wine uh, in America, and you see there's like three to five main subtypes of the ways people in the USA experience wine. Would you split it out that many ways to just cover like the main type of uh, palate profiles so that it works for most people? Yeah, maybe an, an easier example would be we we were working with a company around an artificially sweetened beverage, right? So they they took the sugar out, they put an artificial sweetener in, and we found that there there was a sort of an off flavor associated with that artificial sweetener. And in the country where that product had been developed, it was actually pretty homogenous within that country that there were almost 85, 90% of people um, had a single version of the receptor that was sensitive to that off flavor, which actually wasn't very sensitive to it at all. But then when we looked at other variants that showed up all over the world, on in, in America, there was a variant at, prevalent at about 20%, uh, which was 0% in the original country, that was hypersensitive to this off flavor. So people at, at you know roughly 20% of the population would think this artificial sweetener was god-awful, right? <laughs> Extremely strong, overpowering um, for that. But yet... In Africa, the there was a variant that uh, was completely insensitive, that was unable to detect this off flavor at all. And that was also about 20% of the population. And yet you know, th- those variants are very specific to those um, continental regions. And so we could go tell you know this company, okay, if you're going to start marketing this internationally, go to Africa, don't go to America. Like, you know, 20% of your population absolutely hating your product. You know, those are the guys writing the Yelp reviews, uh, the product reviews saying, oh my God, this is the worst tasting um, artificial sweetener ever, right? So that that immediately kills all your marketing efforts. So that's well, why, a- why not also look at the, the typical diet in various countries, if there is such a thing in other countries, and then based on that, look for substances in there that people particularly love and then put that into some other products that you're making. Like, let's say they like a certain, I don't know, a certain molecule that is disgusting to other people, but that culture loves it for some reason. Maybe mm-hmm. you put that in deliberately to other things that they consume. 
The problem is we have hundreds of receptors in our nose and it's not one receptor binds to one chemical, which gives me one flavor note, right? Um, and I know my, my artificial sweetener example is overly simplified. So I know that that's led us in the wrong direction, but generally context matters, right? And, and like, you know, as soon as you go to a fine restaurant, they'll tell you, okay, you know, you have this wine with this cheese and it suddenly it tastes great, right? But you don't, you know, mix and match the wrong things. Uh, so it turns out, I mean, the receptors in our nose, they're not detecting a specific chemical, they're measuring a pattern of multiple chemicals. And though having other chemicals around changes the sensitivity of the receptor to the chemicals it normally binds. And so, so it's a very complex combinatorial process that's happening. And yeah, if you just take one chemical that you say, oh, this occurs in the food here, and you drop it in into the wrong context, that can still taste awful because it'll, it'll trigger more than one receptor in the nose uh, and tongue, and that will create unexpected results. Let's put it that way. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. So you know, what we're trying to do is measure patterns of receptors and make predictions based on those patterns that are showing up uh, and really try to mimic you know, what would people find to be a pleasing combination, which may include the same molecule, but it may have absolutely no molecules in common. I don't know. Well, if that's, so, what, that's, so what does it look like? How many... Is there an average of how many different types of receptor targets make up the smell of something like an orange or, you know, a, a fresh baked bread or yeah. know, uh, perfume, so, like how many are needed and what are some of the dynamics of the different smells needed to build up a smell profile? Yeah, good question. I would say it varies a lot. I, I can tell you there, there's, there's over 400 receptors in the nose and tongue to give you concept there. I would say on, on average, any, you know, even a single chemical going into the nose will probably turn on 30 receptors, 20, 30 receptors, something like that. And it's, it's when you have a, you know, a complex thing like coffee or wine, you're probably getting a, you know, a hundred receptors turning on as being, you know, recognizing that pattern. And obviously, you know, we use our nose for coffee, wine, you know, dirt, whatever it else is that we're smelling. So it's really those combinations and patterns that give rise to the complexity. So the best analogy I can give you is, is our sense of color vision. So humans can detect over a million different shades of color, but we only have three receptors in our eyes that measure wavelengths. And so we're, our eyes are only measuring red, green, and blue, three receptors. And it's the combination of the relative signal on those that our brain then interprets into over a million different shades of the rainbow that all of us can perceive, right? And so when you think about three receptors in the eyes versus 400 receptors in the nose, you get an idea of sort of the dramatic increase in complexity that, that our noses are able to pick up and information that it's able to pick up. Okay, I mean, so you're in the, in the middle of quantifying this. Why um, are you trying to build this off the human nose? Like why not try to use a dog's nose and see what learnings you get from there because their sense of smell is so much stronger than, than people. Why not model that kind of nose and get better, better data from it. Yeah. Well, so, so two, two points there. So first, actually, when people say, you know, dogs are much better smellers than humans, right? So yes, in general, they have lower detection thresholds and all that, but it's actually not really due to the receptors. Each individual dog receptor is actually just about the same in terms of affinity and chemical uh, recognition than a human receptor. So the receptors themselves aren't the real cause of dogs being better smellers. The dogs basically have much larger surface area. You think about a dog's nose versus a human's nose and just how much surface area they have and how many more receptors they have. Uh, so they're, they can, you know, when a rare molecule shows up, the chance of it hitting a receptor is just that much higher. 
And also the dog's brain has a much bigger portion of its real estate, as it were, dedicated to processing those olfactory signals. So the, the dog is really centered around its nose. So it's able to uh, detect um, and interpret those smells much faster and, and with more sensitivity than a human. So the receptors are really actually not that different if we're going into the, the raw data and the sensitivity around brain um, processing power, we can mimic with a computer and the surface area, we can mimic that in the lab just by putting a lot more receptors per square centimeter than you would have, say, in your nose. The other side is we're really interested you know, in, in the food and beverage applications and things of that nature. We want to smell what a human smells, right? We're not trying to sell products to dogs. There, there are some interesting applications for pet food that you know, we can talk about, but for the most part, you know, we're not trying to sell wine to dogs. We're not trying to sell perfume to dogs. And if we're not trying to design a better wine or perfume for that, we, we want to use the human system because it is the most representative of what human consumers are going to want. Yeah, that makes sense. I got you. You're right. And, and I was going to joke, dogs would eat some things that are just horrifying to people and they don't mind. So right. they don't want to, you know, they'll eat, they'll eat throw up, they'll eat poop. So yeah, we don't really need to yeah. know why they will. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But, you know, things like disease detection is an interesting one, right? Where we know dogs can smell cancer. Uh, they can smell lots of different diseases and it's real interesting anecdotal data across many different diseases. But again, it turns out humans can do the same thing. We have documented cases of humans able to smell lung cancer on people's breath. And the case from a couple of years ago of the, the nurse who's able to smell Parkinson's disease and able to smell par mm -hmm, that's right. years before a traditional diagnosis. So again, lots of good data that, that again, humans and dogs really aren't that far apart in terms of specific sensitivities. If I would say there, there are outliers, right? So there's a lot more good smelling Strong smelling dog, you know what I mean. Uh, you know, good smelling super smeller, yeah, super smeller dogs versus people. Yeah, yeah. In regards to cancer, has it been figured out what dogs or people are smelling? What you know for particular cancers? Um, in some cases, I would say there's some there's some good indications there. So the way we think about it, again, come back to you know our noses are just really good chemical sensors. Right? We're able to detect very small differences in volatile chemicals. Now, human cells are always metabolizing, right? You know, they're, you're, you're taking in sugars and amino acids and proteins. They're breaking that down. They're growing new cells. They're making more proteins. We're reproducing their DNA. And that, that product of metabolism is spitting out sort of small molecule metabolites, which basically look exactly the same as um, odor molecules that we get from other places. And so those, every, every tissue has its own typical metabolism. It has its own typical enzymes. And you know, healthy tissue is putting out a normal panel of small molecule metabolites all the time. When you get sick or when that tissue gets sick, its metabolism changes. It starts spitting out different metabolites, different small molecules. And we pick that up as a different pattern of chemicals in the same way that, you know, two different glasses of wine have slightly different profile. I mean, there's still alcohol, there's still sugars in it, but it's all those other little chemicals that are in there at, you know, one part per million or so. That's what's the, makes the difference for us between a good wine or a bad wine and so on. So what, when we talk about smell, odor, like think about, you know, body odor in, in a, in the crude case, right. But you know, what you're getting there is a mixture of all the different chemicals being excreted by every tissue in the body. And when one, so you have a normal pattern of those molecules, when you're sick, again, a very specific change happens depending on what tissue it is, what the, that sickness is, and that can be picked up as a characteristic. Odor. And again, and that's going to be very different for which cancer, you know, which, um, 
which tissue is happening. But just to give you an idea of specificity, there was a study done in China a few years ago, back when the, um, the influenza, you know, bird flu stuff was going on. And what they found, they, they infected pigs with different strains of influenza and then measured the small molecules being exhaled by the pigs, which were basically wow. motor molecules. And they found they could actually differentiate between influenza A, B, or C. So three different strains of the same virus were actually causing different exhaled uh, patterns of chemicals uh, in these in these infected. So you want to talk about level of specificity, right? You know, the three different strains of the same virus that you can pick up in this way. Uh, so, you know, every single cancer is going to give you a very different pattern. But again, I understand there's different things, different metabolites, but has it been specified, you know, for... Parkinson's or for this type of cancer, what are the molecules that are different? I would say a subset. So yeah, so specifically for Parkinson's, they did identify, I think it was eight specific small molecules in uh, exhale or sorry, in, um, in this case, it's sort of emissions from waxy buildup on their, on their bat, on people's backs. So there were eight very specific chemicals that they identified that may be diagnostic. That being said, again, our noses are, the, the problem here is when we say chemicals identified, you're using a gas chromatograph, a mass spec, you know, very traditional chemical analytical tools, which are far less sensitive than the human nose, right? So you're, when you say we found eight chemicals, those are the ones that they were able to find that were within the limits of detection of our you know, chemical analytical tools. And we know that the nose is a thousand times more sensitive than any other tool that we have available to us. So did we get all the chemicals? Probably not, but at least, you know, we know some that are correlating. Uh, I've seen that same type of uh, approach. Again, the, the influenza study, and they identified specific chemicals. I think in that case, it was five or six being exhaled that were able to differentiate. Lung cancer, they found, you know, eight or nine uh, in exhaled breath. Pancreatic cancer, I've seen some studies around them being able to find uh, some diagnostic patterns in urine, et cetera. But yeah, the question is, yeah, yeah, you're definitely not getting all, but are you getting enough to make an accurate diagnosis? That's an unknown. So none of these have actually gone all the way through the clinic yet to be approved. But have, has anyone said, oh, wow, I'm surprised it's that molecule. That molecule also, you know, is in bananas or something, but that molecule is also found here. Has there been any interesting findings like that? Yeah, no, no, all, all of these things that are found, these are just small volatile chemicals. I mean, these are, you know, things like nine chain aldehydes, right? Or, you know, the six chain alcohols and, and things like that. These are not like dramatically weird, you know, massive heterocycle hormone molecules or anything of that nature. Again, well, these are just the normal metabolites that are coming out of your cells. And it's, it's just the ratio of them is changing in a way that's related to that metabolism. Okay. Well, I was going to say, I, I believe, you know, we may be close to, you know, you're running into a time deadline here. What's just tell me briefly what's coming for Aromics over the next year or two in terms of commercial applications. And then I want to, you know, find out where people can find out more about Aromics. Yeah. So um, I, I think we're, I mean, we're really excited about uh, a lot of opportunities. I know you wanted to talk specifically about the disease stuff. So we've done, um, we're actually working in a, a number of different disease uh, detection applications at the moment. We did a study uh, very successful on detecting prostate cancer uh, last year. We're, we're currently doing a project in malaria and uh, doing a, hopefully one starting in the next few weeks uh, uh, on pancreatic cancer as well, uh, where we think we can have very you know, important inputs in you know, diagnosis. So yeah, I would encourage people if they want to learn more, uh, you know, our website is uh, aromics.com. Uh, and, you know, certainly if people want to reach out to me, I'm happy to talk with them anytime. 
Well, very good. Well, Josh, thank you for coming on the podcast. And it's, it's really interesting stuff. I mean, it's a, I can see you have to think differently when you consider this. It's very different from a lot of other things I've discussed, but it's very interesting. So thank you. Mm -hmm. Yep. No problem. Thanks a lot. I appreciate you taking the time. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.